Good morning. Our first reading this morning will be from Exodus 9. Uh, this is during the, uh, the plagues that God brought upon Egypt uh, in order to rescue his people, the Israelites, from slavery. So Exodus 9, starting at verse 33. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. Now jump to Romans chapter 9, continuing Paul's um, letter uh, to those in Rome, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, 
God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the, obj- the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. A few weeks ago, my wife, um, Kathy and I, were watching a show called Dream Gardens. We've been uh, redoing our backyard, as I think I've told you before, and so we were looking for some inspiration, and we've been watching this show. But... This episode that we were watching was a bit different to all the others. It was hardly about gardens at all. It was about the pool and the deck. That was one thing that was different. But the other thing that was different is that the couple who owned the house and were doing, redoing the garden, they were hardly ever home. They had to FaceTime them in the, in the show for every decision about the garden. They were spending all this money, lots of money, on this garden that they seemed like they were hardly ever going to be using. And the other thing that was different about this episode is that Kathy and I spent the entire episode convinced that we knew these people, but we couldn't figure out how. So we, we did what you do in those situations and we stalked them on the internet. And it turns out we thought we knew them because he was a former Big Brother winner and she was an editor of a, um, of a magazine for teenagers. Now, I didn't think I paid that much attention to Big Brother and magazines for teenagers, but it turns out I must. And as we were looking on the internet, we came across an article about her, which was all about how this woman managed to balance it all. 
She successfully balanced a, a really stressful job with staying healthy and looking good, with a great lifestyle, living in an ideal house in a beautiful location with a young, perfect family. The article was glowing and at first you think, wow, how does she do it? But then you get this feeling that something just doesn't quite add up. If she manages to balance it all, how come she was never at home in the show? And then as, as you keep reading the article, you realise this is actually her third marriage. Her kids have three different dads. Surely it's got to be more complicated than the glossy pictures in the article made it look. And I'm not trying to judge her. I'm being a bit judgy, I know. But more I'm wondering what on earth the author of this article is playing at, trying to present her like she's a superwoman, able to do, do it all and have it all, like none of the rest of us can manage. It felt convincing for a moment. But then something just didn't quite add up. We all have moments like this where, where, where things look Instagram perfect. But then we see something else or we remember something else. And it, and it makes us wonder if things are not as Insta-perfect as they look. Well, today we come to a spot in Romans that feels a bit like that. In the last couple of weeks, you might remember, we, it's like we've reached the top of a mountain. We came to some glorious heights. We've seen we're saved by God's grace, not by our works. We're sons and daughters of God. We're destined to inherit the world. We're irreversibly adopted by God. You know, these were some of the insta-perfect moments that we came across. Hashtag, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But then out of nowhere, chapter 9 starts with a very different tone suddenly. Paul says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul doesn't wait for us to, to kind of go, hang on a minute, something doesn't quite add up. He ruins the Instagram moment himself by pointing out the elephant in the room. If God adopts irreversibly, then what's going on with God's people, Israel? Look at verse 3. Paul says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. All that's theirs. And yet most of the Israelites back then want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, Romans, you might remember, is a letter to a church that's made up of some Jews, but mostly non-Jews. And you can see why this would be a burning question in their minds. They've taken on a faith that's come to them, from the Israelites. But meanwhile, most of those Israelites have rejected it. How on earth has that happened? Has God failed them? Is he the kind of God who's happy to adopt people one minute, but then equally happy to cut them off in the next? And even though our context today is quite different to theirs, this is still a relevant question for us. Could God fail us? Could God adopt us but then change his mind and disinherit us? 
Is God fickle like that? Well, that's what Paul answers over these next three chapters. He takes quite a chunk to do it. And what we see is that God is not fickle. God doesn't choose to adopt us and then change his mind. In fact, it's the complete opposite. God's choice is so solid that it's foundational and it's final and it's confronting. The first big thing we see in this passage is that God's approach has always been not by works but by him who calls. God's approach has always been not by works but by him who calls. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Why haven't all Israel embraced Jesus? Well, it's because not all Israel is Israel. Not all who are physically descended from Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel, not all belong spiritually to Israel. God's word, his promise hasn't failed. In fact, God's promise was always that only some of Abraham's physical descendants would be God's people. Isaiah, he was saying this 700 years before Jesus was even born, when he said in verse 27, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand on the sea, only a remnant will be saved. And even way, way before Isaiah, right at the very beginning of Israel, Paul says you could already see this. Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but it was only through Isaac that God was going to work out his promises, not through all of Abraham's physical children. And then Isaac had two sons, and we see this even more clearly because he has twins. But look at what God tells us through Paul in verse 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She, Isaac's wife, was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Who are the people of God? On what basis are they crowned the people of God? Well, from one cover of the Bible to the other cover, you'll find that God's approach has always been not by works, but by him who calls. That has always been and and always will be what is branded or tattooed on God's people. On what basis is Jacob chosen? Not on the basis of anything he's done or ever will do, because before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God had chosen Jacob. Now that's confronting, isn't it? Paul thinks it is. That's why he immediately raises the objection that comes to our minds. Look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? If we're reading this this passage right then our natural self-orientated instinct should be piping up at this point and saying, hey, I don't really like being taken out of the picture like that. I want to be judged on my many merits, or at least I want to be able to make my own choice. If it all boils down to God's choice, then surely that's 
unjust. That's not fair. That's a very natural response. It's a very understandable response. But it's also completely inaccurate. Because God has always made it clear that he's free to show mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy to. Look at verse 15. Way back when God first revealed himself to Moses and the nation of Israel, he made this clear. He said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is the second thing we see in this passage. God's approach is not unjust because he's free to show mercy to whoever he wants. He's not unjust. He's free to show mercy and he's free to withhold mercy and only show justice. We don't like that because we see that if that's the case, then we have no power over the outcome. Everything lies in the bare choice of God and we can't affect his decision. Now that's confronting. But I'll tell you what it's not. It's not unfair. See, think about this. If two men are unfaithful in their marriages, you know, not just once, multiple times, And if one wife chooses to show mercy and compassion and forgive, but the other decides she's not going to, would you ever consider going up to her and saying, you're unjust, you're unfair, how dare you not show mercy? You wouldn't, right? Of course not. It's entirely her free choice as to whether she shows mercy or not. How dare any of us demand it, least of all, The husband. Is God unjust because he chooses to show mercy to some and not to all? Of course not. It's entirely his free choice as to whether he shows mercy or not. How dare any of us demand it, especially since not one of us has been faithful to him? The fact that God chooses some within Israel to trust in Jesus and not all, that is entirely his free choice. Like verse 16 says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now this is confronting and Paul knows it. But notice what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say, no, no, this this is fair because God saw ahead of time that Jacob would do good things, that he would respond to his grace and have a good heart. And he saw that Esau wouldn't do those things. Now that would make it less confronting. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't even say, no, no, this is fair because God saw ahead of time that Jacob would choose him. And so that's why God chose Jacob. That would make it less confronting. But he doesn't say that either. In fact, what Paul does is he hears our objection. Isn't God unjust? But rather than ease the tension like that, He just turns up the heat. He gives another example from Scripture that shows what God's approach has always been. Have a look at verse 17. He says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And, And what should we have known about God from this example? Verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. We've got that. 
We can reluctantly accept that. But then Paul adds, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Is Paul for real here? I mean, this is making it more confronting, isn't it? And Paul certainly expects that it should be because he immediately voices what's probably going through our minds. Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? If it all comes down to God showing mercy to whoever he wants and God hardening whoever he wants, then clearly it all boils down to what God wants, which can't be resisted, and therefore surely God can't blame us. Now again, that's a very natural response. It's it's a very understandable response. But again, it's also completely inaccurate. Notice again here what Paul doesn't say. He, he just doesn't say, no, God can still blame us because we can resist his will. doesn't say that. As much as we might want him to, he just doesn't. Instead, he, his reply in verse 20 is to say, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes? And some for common use. This is the third big thing we see. God's approach doesn't leave us blameless because we are merely creatures and He is Creator. Paul is saying here we don't even have a platform from which to make our objection. Not because God's a tyrant who won't hear us out, not because God's into cancel culture or something like that. Just logically, it's the case that clay can't critique its creator. It can't. If we think we can talk back to God and judge him, we've misunderstood our place in the universe completely. At my house um, in the last week, I think just about every single person except me has made a gingerbread house for some reason. But if I wanted to, could I make two gingerbread houses, one to put on display for Christmas and one to feed to the kids for afternoon tea that day. I could, couldn't I? Of course I can. And could the gingerbread house that I made for afternoon tea question my moral right to do so? Of course it can't. Not simply because it has no right to, but also because it just doesn't have the ability to do so. You know, a gingerbread house is not a great judge of human ethics. Now, we all realise that there's a huge difference between anything we're able to create and what God has created in humans. We are complex, valued, moral beings. But the point is a creature can only evaluate within the scope of created parameters. A creature can only evaluate within the scope of what the creator reveals about reality and reveals about himself. In other words, when it comes to us judging the infinite God, we've got just as much ability to do that as a gingerbread house has to judge its maker. We're extremely limited. We only have a partial picture. And yet, would we, 
Would we say to the infinite creator, you've got no right to make me like this? In our culture, we value the the radical freedom of the individual to choose their own fate. And we, we take that almost as far as it can go in our culture. And because of that, what we're seeing here, it grates on us so much. Because what we're seeing is that God alone is radically free. God alone is not bound by anyone or anything outside of himself. The only thing God is restrained by is his character. That's it. He will never do anything that that is not true to who he is. He is righteous and he's good and he'll always do what is righteous and good. And we can observe that and appreciate that and seek to understand that. We can even ask hard questions of him. But what we can't legitimately do is accuse him and demand he gives an account to us. We will never be his judge. And so what we see in this passage is that Paul doesn't even try. Paul doesn't try to justify God by giving an account for things which Paul just can't give an account for. That would be to try to be God's judge. Instead, what Paul does is show how God is consistent with who he has always revealed himself to be. If you look over these chapters, just flick through your Bible, through chapter 9, 10 and 11, what you'll see is that Paul is quoting scripture after scripture after scripture. Paul is showing that the question that we should be asking is, is God being true to who he has always revealed himself to be? And the answer is yes, overwhelmingly. We don't understand how everything works. We can't understand how everything works. We don't understand why God shows mercy to some and yet he hardens others. It doesn't sit comfortably with us. But we can see that God is righteous, he's good and he's always been like that and he always will be like that. The reality for us, which is not particularly comforting here in one way, is that there's a mystery for us here. There's a mystery that's beyond us. And we even see that, Paul's put that in this passage. If you look at verse 2, Paul writes, What if? There's mystery. There's more to the picture somehow. But nonetheless, Paul says, What if? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this? To make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. It's more complicated than this, but part of the picture seems to be that through God's mercy and also through God's anger, he's revealing himself to this world. And he's doing it to make a world possible that would not otherwise be possible. We shouldn't expect to understand the way the infinite God works. We just can't. But Paul's point here is that what ultimately matters in God's plan is not your race, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. What ultimately matters is not your track record, what you do or don't do. What ultimately matters is God's call on your life, which means God hasn't failed his people because it's always been the case that God didn't call all who were descended from Israel. He calls a remnant. 
Now, that was their burning question. That was like the elephant in the room for them. But it's probably not so much our concern, is it? So what should we do with this passage? What should we do with this idea that it's not by works, but by him who calls? Well, what do Christians usually do with it? Well, usually what they do is they end up in a debate which yields very little fruit, don't they? I remember having a a debate about the P word, predestination, when I was a teenager. And I, I remember quite clearly saying, if God's like that, then that's not a God I want to know. I was the clay having a go at being the art critic. It doesn't sit very well. But often what Christians do with this, this passage is that some of us find it so confronting that we end up trying to defend God as if he needed us to defend him. We try to argue why this passage isn't saying what it sounds like it's saying. But then on the other side, you have people arguing to show why it is saying what it sounds like it's saying and why they're more correct, more insightful, more faithful to doctrine. Both can be about trying to defend God. Both can be about trying to be right. But neither approach is helpful because God doesn't need us to defend him. And what matters far more than whether we're right doctrinally or not is whether we actually know the character of God as he's revealing himself to us. And I tell you what, if we're arguing in a self-orientated kind of way, we're not focusing on the character of God. Now, if we don't like this passage, we have a few options, and I just want to very quickly run through them. So the first option that you have if you don't like this passage is you can go after Paul. Maybe Paul wasn't inspired by God. Maybe he puts things quite poorly here. Now, most of us recognize this is not a good option because... Where do you start and where do you stop with this kind of approach? Throw out one bit. Where do you stop? Logically, you may as well just keep going till all you're left with is the bits you like. You can't have any confidence in the whole. So most of us recognize that's not really an option. So the next option we have is is to look more closely at it and to see if there's another way to understand it. Now, this is a better option. But the danger is that we won't be happy until we, we get it to say something that we, that we want it to say. The danger is that we'll make Scripture a mirror that reflects our own character back to us rather than a window that reveals God's character to us. Some people will say about this passage, well, this is about God choosing groups of people, not choosing individuals. But you've got to remember that the whole reason Paul is ruining his Instagram moment is because individuals within a group are not responding to Jesus. This passage is entirely about why some individuals do respond and why some individuals don't. The next option is to say, well, this is, this is about how people respond to God's work. It's not about individual salvation. You know, After all, it's not about whether Pharaoh is going to heaven or not. It's about God hardening Pharaoh to be against his plans. But the problem with this approach is that the language of mercy and destruction and the call of God, they're all completely linked with salvation. It's meaningless to separate them. And remember how cut up Paul is about this. He's so upset that like Moses, like Jesus even, he would wish that he himself was cut off if it would save his people. There's just no getting around that this is talking about people's salvation. In fact, 
There's no way to get around this passage. But the reason that it's here is not so that we can be doctrinally correct in a self-righteous kind of manner. The reason it's here is because it actually makes a difference to our lives. God is saying to us here, not by works, but by him who calls. What do you make of that? If I was ever going to get a tattoo, I reckon this, this option should be right up there, you know, next to Kathy forever. I could have, not by works, but by him who calls. It's a bit of an essay. I don't have a great pain threshold. I might only make it to sort of not, or maybe just no, which wouldn't look so trendy. But what a, mass- a message here to have tattooed on your life, not by works, but by him who calls. Properly understood, this message is liberating. It's not our works that seal us for God. It's never been our works. It never will be our works. It's his call. It's always been his call on you. A call that's not based on you, but is based on him only. Now that's confronting at first, but it's liberating in the end, isn't it? It gives us confidence. First, it gives us confidence that God won't ever discard his people. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, but all who are truly Israel, God will save and never discard. And all of us outside of Israel who have faith in Jesus, whoever we are, he will never discard us. His plan doesn't change. He's not fickle. He won't cast us aside. That gives us confidence. The second way this gives us confidence is that it it actually gives us confidence to talk with people about Jesus. Some people think it's the opposite. Some people think if, if if it's all about God's choice, then why should we even bother telling people about Jesus? We don't need to worry about it. But that's not the way Paul sees it, is it? Paul's heart is for the lost. His heart burns for his own people especially. And rather than God's choice stopping Paul speaking... Instead, it gives him confidence to speak because it's not just up to him and how convincing and persuasive he can be. It's ultimately up to God. We can confidently open our mouths and start speaking about Jesus because it ultimately boils down to God's choice, not how convincing we are or how persuasive we are. If we suck at telling people about Jesus, but we keep at it, we will eventually come across people that God has chosen for him. That gives us enormous confidence. The third reason this gives us confidence is because it's not about our works. It's not about what we do or don't do. It's not even about our faith, how much faith we do or don't have. It's about God's call on our lives. And we've seen across Romans that our faith is critical Our choice of God is essential. But here's the thing. It's God's choice of us that enables us to choose him. Augustine said this way back in the 4th century. He said, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. Can you believe in Jesus? Well, if you can, that's God's choice of you working out in your life. And if you can't believe in Jesus yet, look again. The thing I've noticed 
in my life is that it's almost always the case that God takes people on a journey to believe. That's the way he does it. God prods you and he prods you and he works in you. But if he's chosen you, you can be confident that that journey will end in only one place. You'll run and you'll fight and then you'll give up on God entirely. But then somehow at some point you'll find yourself won by him. He will win and you will choose him. That's the beautiful thing. He'll win you over and you'll freely choose him because he's chosen you. God never fails his people. The key is Jesus and faith in him. And ultimately and mysteriously, God holds that key. It's not human desire or effort, but God's mercy. Not by works, but by him who calls. And in the end, that's liberating. Let's pray. Father, we freely admit that though we know you as Father and truly know you, we cannot exhaustively know you. You are infinite. We are mere creatures. You do not have to give an account of yourself to us. We are not your judges. Father, as our hearts struggle to understand your ways and your work, help us to remember your righteousness, your goodness, your mercy, your compassion. Help us to see Christ on the cross and to see that in Jesus we see your clearest and most powerful revelation of yourself, your heart. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to find confidence that it's not by our works, but by your call. Lord, work your call out in our lives. Bring us to faith and ever-increasing faith. Lord, help us to have confidence and ever-increasing confidence that we are yours and you'll never cast us aside. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.